This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Josh Horwitz from Quartz and we dissect why Apple has invested US $1 billion in China's largest ride-hailing app, DD Chusing, and the implications for Uber in their plans to conquer China and the rest of the world. Hi, Josh. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? You're back on the show again. I love this show. I listen to Analyze Asia all the time. I learn so much. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I'm not exaggerating. And I think that you've done tremendous work and it's, it's been a huge asset to me as a writer and someone who's trying to learn about this region constantly. I love Analyze Asia. I mean, I'm also a fan of your work and I know you're currently a writer for Quartz, which is a very well-known news site. And you have covered some very interesting stories. I think the one that you analyzed on the Alibaba's acquisition of a majority stake in Lazada and also the OTT subscription news in India. Yeah, those, yeah. Were, those were both during my trip to Singapore when we, we linked up over, over beer. And, and what are the interesting news that you have covered recently then? Gosh, recently it's been, it's been a little bit of everything. I did a piece today that discussed some of the dealings that Alibaba is going through with the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really been a little bit of everything. At Quartz, we're looking to ramp up our coverage of Shenzhen in particular. So right now, I'm just trying to build my network and familiarize myself with you know, some of the nuances of that city so we can do a lot of great coverage on manufacturing and tech in Shenzhen. You know Cyril and Benjoff from Hexagon I do, yeah. They're fantastic. Actually, I've met with Ben several times when he was in Hong Kong, and, and when I go to Shenzhen, I meet with him. And yeah, we're actually cooking up something that's that's kind of top secret, secret right now. I'm uh, going to look forward to that article because I want to get to the topic that we want to discuss today. The precursor to that discussion is I want to go back to the on-demand transportation wars, which uh-huh. we last talked about. So since our last conversation, what has actually transpired for the different dominant players, for example, Uber, Didi, Ola, Grab, and also Gojek within the space in the global world? Sure. Well, overall, I'd say it's actually been a pretty quiet past six months, at least in Southeast Asia, most of Southeast Asia, and in China too. I think that things are kind of coming to a simmer. And I expect that maybe after another six months or perhaps year, we'll start to see things kind of kick back into first gear again. Uh, the one market that I'm really interested in is Indonesia. That's really emerging as an outlier market in, in the ride hailing industry in the sense that it seems like it's not so much a battle between Uber and Grab. I mean, that's a serious war, but we're seeing Gojek and which is you know, scooters and bikes go up against Grab and Grab Bike. You know, I think that it, it kind of makes sense how it's bikes in Indonesia where we're seeing most of the competition. And then that in and of itself, I think, presents some interesting problems because I think that the bike model might be a little harder to monetize than something like cars, and obviously the industry is a little more is a little more makeshift than something like drivers ferrying around passengers for cash. I thought the surprising news was a Bloomberg article that talked about both Grab and. Gojek's founders, they happen to come from the same Harvard Business School class. That was a really great article. I was really jealous of that. And yeah, it, it was an excellent piece. And I think it's a testament to, I mean, we're going to talk about this later. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this later in the podcast, but it is amazing to think that among Uber and Didi and Gojek and Grab in Asia, there, there's so much old Asian money in that industry. You know, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we're, all, we're already seeing some of that old Asian money come into 
some of the startups and internet businesses that are emerging in Southeast Asia, uh, what would happen to Zalora, right? And then, of course, uh, Matahari Mall in Indonesia. So I don't know if we're going to see you know, grandma and grandpa you know, take over their grandson's business. I mean, nothing that extreme, but it's definitely interesting to see that old Asian money is, is at the forefront uh, of these cutting-edge disruptive businesses. Yeah, when you have the grandpa and the patriarchs of the family business coming into the startup internet business, you got to be a bit worried too. But anyway, coming back, one interesting thing that actually happened recently was I think Uber versus Google ways because Google is an investor of Uber, right? Mm-hmm. What actually happened when self-driving cars meet with this on-demand transportation service? I don't think anyone really knows. That's one of the questions that a lot of people are wondering. You know, I don't think anyone really knows where self-driving car technology and ride-hailing technology are going to intersect. I think there's sort of three trends in the automotive industry, and they're not necessarily related, right? One is the move from gas engines to batteries, right? EVs, electric vehicles. Another move is manually driven cars, cars driven by human beings to self-driving cars. And then the third trend is this one where people actually own their car to one where people that could potentially own their car choose not to, and instead they get most of their rides through these on-demand transportation networks like Uber or Grab or Ola. I don't think these, you know, these three trends don't have to overlap, but obviously the players that are in this industry, there is overlap. Google is making a car, it's self-driving, they once invested in Uber and now they've had it falling out. Uber is, of course, making its own self-driving car. I don't know what's going to happen. I think that it, it used to, I used to think that we would probably see Uber not rush right into making a sort of Uber branded, like or a standalone self-driving car. I thought that what might happen is that Uber just might introduce technology to make every car a self-driving car. And that's technology that people have been working on. Actually, Bloomberg did a, a long piece about this, maybe about, I don't know, three or four months ago. And actually, it actually elicited a response from Elon Musk, who got kind of rattled by this piece. So I thought that, you know, it, on the one hand, it seems sensible that that's a path that Uber is going to pursue because it's not necessarily, it, it's sort of asset led. Like right now, Uber doesn't own any of the cars. And introducing this technology to make every single car self driving would seem to be sort of in, in the same vein of Uber's asset light model. That said, though, this news that they just deployed a uh, board fusion, that might suggest that that's indeed the vein that they're going to pursue, or maybe we'll see. Uber Ford fusions. Uh, I, I'm not really sure what's what's going to happen. You know how those three trends are going to overlap. Just to talk about those three trends in general, because for the petrol to electric cars, I think for governments, you have seen this happening in the 1980s. There was the electric car, but they killed it because of the petrol and oil industry. So, and even governments don't think that that would change their GDP. But the trend from manual to autonomous vehicles actually changes the macroeconomic conditions. It actually saves governments billions because of traffic congestion. Right. The reason why the autonomous and electric cars intersect is because the best autonomous cars has to be electric. Right, right. So you see that merging. But the second piece, which I think you broke it up as well, is the one about on-demand ride-sharing versus full car ownership with the intersecting with the self-driving cars, will that actually happen? But it seems to be happening with GM partnering and invested in Lyft and with Toyota investing in Uber. Right. Well, you know, I'm really kind of cautious on reading too much into those particular partnerships where we're seeing car makers invest in ride companies. These are large companies that have shareholders to please and 
it's very, very easy for them to invest a couple hundred million or, or however much money they want into one of these startups and say, oh, you know, to be able to tell investors, oh, we're, we're investing in the future. But it's true that the statistics, there has been research that's showing that millennials, at least in the United States, are going to be less prone to buying their own vehicles than they, than they might have been 20 years ago. So it's not like those investments are completely, completely in vain. That's one tie up. I'm, I'm reluctant to peer too much into a crystal ball. I think that it's probably safe to assume that, you know, that there might be some sharing in terms of how to build cars, or perhaps if Uber or Lyft do decide that they want to own their own vehicles in some way, shape, or form, then there might be some partnerships and distribution. But again, like I, I personally just tend to be very, very cautious when peering into that particular crystal ball. Okay, which comes to the conversation of the day, because we have seen the Apple's US $1 billion investment in Didi, and I think this actually escalated the war between Didi versus Uber in China. I think the interesting part of it is that Uber is invested by Google, which is also Apple's competitor. There is some dynamics happen, but I, I think the, the first questions I wanted to ask is, why did the deal happen? And what are the potential reasons that you think that Apple actually invested in Didi? Sure. It's a good question. It's a big question. And I think that, again, like a lot of things in this industry, it's hard to say decisively why. But we can definitely look at some recent events that have happened to these companies and some recent indicators and how these companies are evolving that can shed some light on why this investment happened. What a lot of people have written, uh, including myself, is that this is an example of Apple trying to curry favor with the Chinese government in order to safeguard its own business in China. I think there's some truth to that statement and there's some truth to that argument. But I actually think that a more interesting way to look at this investment is through the lens of the automotive industry in China and also looking at what China's, ag China's agendas are for the development of its own technology. So there's a lot to say here. Let's start with looking at the sort of basic thesis that a lot of people wrote about, that a lot of people wrote, saying that Apple is trying to curry favor the government. Well, I think that it's now is definitely a difficult, or Apple is going to be seeing more difficulties in China in the next five or 10 years, far more so than it encountered in the last five or 10 years. And the primary reason for that, and this isn't too different from what it's going through in other countries, but the primary reason for that is because sales of the iPhone are slowing. China's market for smartphones is slowing. It's growing at between 2% and 5% annually. Most of the people that are capable of owning a phone already have one. And that means that Apple, the next consumers that Apple can bring in to buy smartphones are either existing iPhone owners or people that own Androids and that are interested in switching. And both of these groups are difficult for Apple to, it's not as easy for Apple to court these, these two groups of people than it is a first-time smartphone buyer. And the reason for that is because the iPhones keep getting better and better. And if you just bought an iPhone 5 or an iPhone 6, the phone will already last you a couple years more than that. So you don't need to upgrade as quickly as you did maybe five years ago or more than that when you had the earlier versions of the iPhone. And then meanwhile, for Android, it's possible that a high-end you know, an owner of a high-end Samsung or a high-end Huawei would be open to switching over to Apple in the future. But there's a high chance that this person already is loyal to an Android brand, whether that's Huawei or whether that's Google services. And it's just a, a higher, uh, an extra hurdle that the company will have to jump. So the low-hanging fruit for Apple to Apple to pick at in China has already been, has already been taken. But Everyone Google services are banned in China, though. 
Google services are banned in China, but it's possible that some people just, that, that's a good point. But I mean, Baidu has an ecosystem and Tencent has an ecosystem. A lot of the Chinese internet companies have services that you know, they have app stores. You know, Android is really, is still the platform to be on in China just because those internet companies, those internet companies have so many apps and so many entry points for their products and services. And, and Android is really the best way to experience that. I don't think it's going to be any easier. I think it's, the, the Apple is still going to do very, very well in China. I think that its brand is in an excellent position there. But the glory days are over. And then meanwhile, Apple is definitely keen to expand its services, or meaning software and media, basically. The company has made it clear that now that iPhone sales are stalling, it needs to make money off of software. And in China, that's going to be difficult. Well, that's going to be difficult everywhere. But in China, it's going to be difficult in particular because software and media, media in particular, is, is an industry that the Chinese government has been policing aggressively in the past two years, I'd say. And we even saw Apple get hit when about maybe a month ago, slightly more than a month ago, their iTunes movie stores, their iTunes bookstores were shut down in China. Uh, and this was despite the fact that they had already they had obtained a proper license to operate these media channels. There were still some pressures. It's not really clear what those specific pressures were, but somehow they were forced to get shut down by the government. So was that related to the Hong Kong's iTunes store distributing a movie called 10 Years? Yeah, you know, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that. We can only guess. That did catch my eye when it was it was about a day later that I, I realized that you could watch 10 years in iTunes store. I'm not sure. Again, you know, the, the, the Chinese government in particular, SARF, which is um, one of the regulatory bodies that oversees the media industry in China. Their moves aren't really predictable. The only thing that's predictable is that you know it will be unpredictable. I wanted to go back to the question. Does Didi need Apple's investment? Oh, sure. I think that every company, in particular a Chinese company, is going to be thrilled to get investment from Apple. They have some of the most talented engineers in the world for hardware and software. But I am skeptical of what specifically Didi can gain from Apple other than prestige and, and some bragging rights. I think that Apple is very much a hardware company. They make phones, uh, they make laptops, and they make some other stuff. But they, you know, they do have Siri, but they're not really a data company they're not really a cloud company. They're not really an AI company. The general consensus is that they trail far behind Google in that respect. Quite likely that they'll trail behind Facebook in that respect since Facebook has so much data about how we spend our time on the internet and what we consume. So it, it's very, very hard to see how this smartphone company at, at its core can contribute to Didi, at least in the very short term. In the long term, and where this investment gets a lot more interesting is this overlap of, of the cars, which we have, we have just been talking about. And uh, it's no secret that Apple is investing aggressively in a car. It's quite likely that the car is going to be the next, let's just call it a halo product. It's going to be the next thing. It's going to be the next big product from Apple. The iPad didn't really turn out the way that we thought it would, and uh, the Apple Watch didn't really turn out the way that we thought it would. And it's possible that some other hardware might come out in the coming years, but it's uh, there's no doubt that Apple is going to make a car. That pits it against a whole bevy of competitors that we never had to deal with before. In China, though, it's where things get really interesting. So currently, Apple makes about 25% of its revenue from China. That makes it basically an indispensable market for the company. And they've been incredibly successful there, almost more so than any other consumer tech company or any tech or internet company in the world. Apple has just had tremendous success in China and very, very little regulatory pushback for the iPhone. Now, for cars, it's going to be much, much different. The automotive industry is one that's guided very carefully by the Chinese government since the 80s. As early as the 80s, 
automotive and automobiles is named as a, a pillar industry for China. There's a lot of prestige and uh, bragging rights that go into that desire to make for, for China to make its own excellent cars. I think there, there's a lot of symbolism attached to those ambitions when you look at what GM means to the U.S. or what Toyota means to Japan. I think that the Chinese government crave that global recognition. They crave that prestige, and they want to be able to to make cars that can compete. With those historic companies, since the '80s, as the government has worked to realize those ambitions, it's also placed very, very strict controls on how it works with foreign companies. Before I proceed, I actually just want to say that we'll be talking about the Chinese government over the course of this discussion. When I say the Chinese government,、uh, we should be clear that the Chinese government. Is not a unitary organization. There's many, many different agencies. There's the separation of the party and the state. There's the central government versus the provincial or municipal governments. But when I use the phrase the Chinese government, I'm I'm saying what I mean is you're talking about a federation of different agencies, different states, different provinces, right? Different that, people that actually that actually have different kind of decision matrix, right? With their、right. You know, the policies, though. At the same time, there is sort of a common direct, an agreed upon direction. Even though how that direction is executed is carried out by many bodies, some of which have different incentives. So let's look at the automotive industry in China. Ever since the '80s, whenever a foreign car company has wanted to come to China to do business, the only way they've been able to do so is through a fifty-fifty joint venture. And these fifty-fifty joint ventures must be with state-owned enterprises, meaning companies in which. The government, usually in these cases, provincial or or municipal governments, has a stake in this particular state affiliated company, a controlling stake in this particular state affiliated company. And so, for example, Ford Motor has a joint venture with Chang'an Motors in Chongqing. General Motors has a joint venture with the Shanghai Automotive Industry Corporation in Shanghai. They've actually made an investment in Uber. Mercedes has a joint venture with Beijing Automotive Industry Corporation. It's literally the, and the, the terms of these JVs or, or the sort of、uh, purpose of these JVs from the government's perspective is that in order to build up China's automotive industry and get people to buy and make China competitive for cars, we need to bring the foreign car com- car companies and we need them to help these state-owned enterprises make cars. There's an exchange in theory of technology and expertise for market access for these foreign car companies, and so most of the foreign cars that we see on the ground in China nowadays, they might have the stamp of、uh, on, on the actual car. You might see a Mercedes logo, and then you might also see a BAIC logo.、Uh, that means that basically, you know, that car was made by that joint venture. These rules of, of forming a 50-50 joint venture have been very, very strict. There's no way to relax them. That's one of the reasons why Tesla is going to be facing is and and will continue to face a lot of problems in China. It's because without making their cars in China and without going through a joint venture, their cars are not subject to an import tax. And B, they're also they're also they also don't qualify for some of the subsidies that local governments are are pushing. Let me understand this then. What you're trying to say is that in order for Apple to get into the transportation business into China, he has to find a partner. And I think this has been happening in with other internet companies. For example, Uber and Facebook have a very strategic partnership with Baidu. So,、right. are we seeing the same thing happening out with Apple and Didi? I, I guess the question I'm trying to be more general is to ask: What does Apple actually gain from investing in Didi? Well, Apple gains an inroad. To distributing its car in China, I think that again, it's very, very far off in the future. But 
I think that there's no doubt that like we are going to see the car and the automotive industry completely change in the next 10 years or, or perhaps later than that. Internet companies are going to be involved. Hardware companies are going to be involved. And, and the legacy companies are also going to be involved too. So the competitive dynamics and competitive strengths and weaknesses are going to be shaken up completely. And you're right, Apple, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. Apple, if they hope to sell the car in China, they need to have a partner. And it's possible that partner might have to be a state-owned enterprise. It's possible that DD is not going to serve that specific partnership purpose with Apple. DD, for one thing, is not a car company. It's a ride-hailing company. And it's also not a state-owned enterprise. It's a, it's a VIE. I think that's a variable interest entity. Yeah, if DD is not a car company. It's not a hardware company. It's a ride-hailing company. It's a data company. And it's also not a state-owned enterprise. It's a variable interest entity, kind of like Alibaba. That means that it's received money from foreign investors through a sort of proxy shell company that's located usually in the Cayman Islands or some sort of some sort of place like that. Apple will need to form some sort of partnership with some sort of Chinese company that does have ties to the state that hopes to bring its car to China. So I, I see this investment as one step in that direction. One thing that's worth mentioning, Bernard, is that I think that the, the Chinese government, again, using that term broadly, when you look at their agenda, their agenda to become dependent or reliant almost entirely on homegrown tech, the date is 2020, and they're, they're quite serious about that, about that goal, as ambitious as it actually is. I think that the smartphone industry is something that the Chinese government probably feels a lot of pain towards. Uh, I think that they look at the statistics of the top-selling phones in China or the top-selling phones all over the world, and it's painful to see Apple, an American smartphone company at the top. And it's painful to see Samsung, a Korean company at the top. And it's true that Huawei is performing well now and that Oppo and Vivo are performing well, but there's no doubt that the first comers and the powerful players in that, in that industry were all foreign companies. And what's more is that as soon as you turn on those smartphones, if it's not an Apple phone, what do you see? You see a big logo that says Google, which is an American company and also an American company that has sort of been awkward political legacy in China. So I think that China sees EVs and self-driving vehicles as a fresh start, right? No one could have predicted the, how smartphones would change the way that we behave as consumers, uh, would change the way that we compute. It just, hit, it just hit the world so fast. No one was really ready for it. Cars, on the other hand, China has been preparing for that for a long time, uh, from a regulatory perspective since the 1980s. And from a technology perspective, in terms of self-driving driving vehicles and electric vehicles, they've been working on that for the past 10 years, much like companies in the U.S. and in Japan have also been preparing for that, too. So Apple was very, very lucky that they didn't run into any barriers when it came to bringing their phone to China. However, those barriers are almost certainly going to affect it if it hopes to bring its car to China. That means that it's going to it's going to operate differently than it has before. Whereas in China and in all of its other markets, it's operated very independent and with very few local partnerships. But that's going to change for China in the future. There are some things about Apple in China that I think a lot of people don't really think about. One of the things that I know Apple is very good at is actually integrating Chinese services into the iPhone platform. You have a Baidu search engine running in the iPhone. You have a Alipay running in the iPhone. You have WeChat running in the iPhone. And the integration is really seamless. And they make a lot of effort in their presentation keynotes. When they launched the iPhone, they put up all these China in the forefront. I mean, if you don't talk about in terms of how Google treated Apple with Android to, to China versus how Apple treated the China internet companies, it's so different. 
Right, that's true. But I think it's true that that probably, that may have earned them some brownie points. But ultimately, I think that the effect of, of those integrations is pretty, on the one hand, it's necessary, right? Because China is such a massive market and there's really two internets in the world. There's the internet of China and there's the internet of the world. China is about half of the world to make some really crude numbers. If you're any internet, you know, or, I mean, so Apple has to has to be inclusive in that sense. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think that you know, I think that the real the real challenge, I, I, the way that I see it is, I think they were able to they they were lucky they were lucky that their hit product in China was one that China wasn't prepared for. China was not China did not know that smartphones would take over the world in a matter of a year or two. And but they are ready for cars. And not only are they ready for cars, but a, a regulatory precedent has been set. Uh, there must be a 50-50 joint venture for any foreign company that wants to sell cars in China with a state-owned enterprise. That has always been non-negotiable in China for foreign car, car companies. There's no reason why Apple should or will be an exception to that. That's where things will get interesting. I don't know if DD is going to count or, or if that, as a partner that can serve that purpose. Right? It's possible that Apple might have to partner with some state-owned enterprise that isn't a particularly ambitious or innovative company and ultimately only serves to just kind of rubber stamp and Chinify its China sales. I have a question then. What will happen to Uber China then, given that now Apple invested in Didi? I think that it's definitely a blow for Uber in China only because ride-hailing right now is about funding. Funding is the gasoline for ride-hailing. And any money that's going into Didi's pockets is money that's not going into Uber China's pockets. The real interesting question, though, is what's happening for Uber globally now that Apple has invested in Uber's rival? Because Didi, on the one hand, is a Chinese company, but it's also arguably a global company. It has partnerships and investor overlap with GrabTaxi, with Lyft, and with Ola. You know, we've talked about the possibilities for consolidation or mergers, and I think we both agree that we're not going to see that for a long, long time. It's, it's not really necessary. But there's no doubt that there's two teams here. There's Team Uber, there's Team Everyone Else. Apple has uh, Apple just invested in Team Everyone Else. Now, that's what I think is, is really frightening for Uber globally, to know that the most powerful hardware company is in bed with the other player. And maybe that will mean more perks for these companies should the Apple car come out in the U.S., right? Maybe using Lyft and an Apple car, to draw a very crude crystal ball example, maybe using Lyft in the U.S. as a superior experience on Apple's car than using Uber. Or when it comes to distribution, distributing software or collecting data, it's possible that those companies will get in bed and Uber will be left to fend for itself. And I think that that's that's kind of painful. Well, you know, on the one hand, Uber has always been a company that's fended for itself. But I also think that Uber and Apple would have been perfect bedfellows. There's so many similarities and the ways that Steve Jobs ran Apple during the iPhone era, and the way that Travis Kalanick is running Uber. They were both very, very independent. They were both very, very dogmatic. If you think about the way that Steve Jobs wouldn't compromise with telcos and wouldn't let them dictate what could be on the iPhone, uh, they couldn't dictate the terms of the user experience, or they couldn't pre-install their own apps. Uber has done something very similar in the way that they control the user experience on on the app. They give drivers very, very little leeway in terms of, it's an app that absolutely favors consumers over drivers. The way that they enter markets, it's always always doing first, asking for forgiveness later. Uh, They've been very dogmatic about not partnering with taxis, despite the fact that it might increase supply. They're very, very adamant that partnering with taxis is not the user experience that they want. There are a lot of those similarities in in terms of principles that they shared. I really was expecting, I was expecting a tie-up from the two companies. And so that's what's really shocking about the Didi investment, is that Apple has gone for Team China 
over Team Uber. So I have a question for you. I guess we were we have been we talked about this before the show. Who are the main players behind Didi and Uber China? Everybody knows now from the fast company profile of Jin Liu who did the deal with Tim Cook from Apple and even got a picture on on the Chinese internet and also the Wei Zheng, the founder and CEO of Didi. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about them? Sure. So this is something that I think is definitely worth keeping an eye on in the future. Uh, as we were saying earlier, there's there's a lot of legacy money that's wrapped up in these in the sort of the so-called anti-Uber alliance in Asia. But in particular, there's kind of a, a family. There's like a tech family that's involved. Jean Liu is the daughter of uh, Liu Yuanzhi, who's the founder of Lenovo, uh, and she used to work at Goldman Sachs. She was not the original founder of Didi. She was brought on before, right after the merger. Of course, you know, coming from that family um, is almost certainly well connected in China. But what's interesting is that her cousin is also the director of strategy of Uber China. Now, there's been some rumors and some discussion about how active Liu Zhang actually is. Liu Zhang is the cousin to Jin Liu, right? Yeah, You're talking yeah. about. Yes, uh, there's been some discussions to how active Liu Zhang actually is as director of strategy in Uber China. The company has not put her on the press circuit at all. She's never available for interviews. We never see profiles of her either in Chinese media and certainly not in foreign media. And Uber also doesn't have a China CEO. And it's also known that Travis Kalanick will travel to China very, very frequently and, and runs that division uh, pretty hands-on, considering that he's also the CEO of the entire company globally, too. But it's interesting to note that there's overlap in personalities. And that's not the only personality where we're seeing overlap. Jerry Yang is listed as a, a senior advisor to Didi. And Jerry Yang, uh, I'm referring to Jerry Yang, who's the founder of, one of the original founder of Yahoo. As we both know, one of the earliest investors in Yahoo was SoftBank, who is also a DD investor and also a Grab investor and also an Ola investor. What else? Well, and also Jerry Yang did the famous deal with Alibaba, which basically gave the saving line for Yahoo now. Exactly. With exactly. the stick in Alibaba. Exactly. I think just cover it up. I mean, even for Southeast Asia, there's also the same kind of old money that is involved as well, right? For example, Grab's founder is linked to the founder of the Tanchong Motors. He's the grandson and who owns the exclusive distribution to a car company in Southeast Asia called Nissan, which is a very well-known Japanese automotive company. And so, you know, it's quite likely that as these leasing programs, uh, which are, are very common in Southeast Asia and common in Singapore, which Uber is using to increase its supply of cars, it, it's quite likely that we'll see some partnership with Nissan or perhaps Nissan and members of this anti-Uber alliance, or at least in this part of the world. You know, recently I've, I've read through a couple of the Asia media tech sites, they all claim about 600 certificate entitlement. So in Singapore, it's a little bit different. Before you own a car, you need to have what's called a certificate of entitlement, which is actually called COE in short. To buy a car in Singapore is almost like buying a house basically so the coe price usually is about 50k to 60k for vehicles that are below 1.6 cc and above that is actually very much higher called luxury cars what was interesting was when i was actually going to a car dealer last weekend the car dealer started telling me about this whole thing and apparently uber is actually going out for six thousand coes wow not 600 as reported by the press. They're actually going out to buy cars from Mitsubishi, Honda, Toyota. In fact, Toyota has the lion's share of at least 40% of that amount of cars. And the car salesman actually said, this has been known in the industry for a while, and in so the last are, couple of months. What are they going to do with these COEs specifically? So basically, I think where Uber is trying to do now is to figure out the supply, how to control the supply of the cars. 
Mm-hmm. So what they will end up doing is that they will try to use companies in Singapore, which are actually car leasing companies, to lease out the cars, but they provide the money so that they can control the driver supply. I see. And, and, and because they are already doing this deal with Toyota, it sort of makes me wonder why Grab hasn't done that yet, given that Anthony Tan has direct access to Tanchong Motors, who actually owns the exclusive distribution rights to Nissan cars. Yeah, well, I'm I'm wondering the same thing too. You and I have spoken privately about you know some goings on at Grab that we think might be affecting the way that business is done over there. Uh, we can't comment too much on that on the air, but it, it's definitely a question. Yeah, mm, I think this is a question that we're going to talk about, and actually, it was a pretty very interesting conversation that we have for today. So, Josh, as always, help my audience. How do they find you? Uh, find me on Twitter. I am at Horowitz Josh. You can call me or add me on WhatsApp at uh, country code 852-947-87654. My WeChat and Line actually, uh, you know, I I just switched phones. I purchased a new phone and I can't seem to get onto those accounts. So otherwise I would be happy to give out those, give out my name for, for those accounts, but I can't use them. So find me on WhatsApp if you like the chat apps. Cool. And you can find me at bleongcw at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and of course, Google Play, only limited into the US market. And of course, you can tweet to us at AnalyzeAsia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. So Josh, I always enjoy this kind of conversations with you. I'm sure we're going to have another few more to come. Okay. So, so we have another one, Bernard. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and it's always a pleasure uh, listening to this podcast.